2: Well, welcome back, beloved listeners, and fire up your barbecues for another cracking episode of Democracy Sausage. I'm Dr. Maria Taflaga, and we have three wonderful guests who I will now introduce. I have uh, Professor Sharon Bessel from the Crawford School. Hi,
1: great to be here.
2: And I have uh, Miria Holman, who is currently visiting us from Tulane University in the United States. Wonderful to be back here. Also a professor. Also a professor, yes. Also a professor. Sorry, Maria. And uh, we have the wonderful Dr. Jill Shepard from the School of Politics and International Relations from where I'm from too. Not a professor. That's right. Also not a professor. I am not a professor. So yes. But um, it's been an interesting week in Australian politics. Um, I think if we were to sort of uh, summarise uh, what all the little constituents bits uh, all kind of added up to, I think integrity would be the main theme. So the week sort of started off with, as you might recall, with the sort of grass gate scandal around Angus Taylor, a minister who is in, uh, it seems like a fair bit of hot water over potentially asking his department to do things that might benefit his private interest, to the uh, ongoing scandal around uh, how we treat vulnerable people on uh, welfare payments, around the sort of robo-debt scandal, to um, all kinds of potential problems around the Crown Casino and corruption, uh, and finally, this sort of problem of sexual harassment and assault uh, in the Liberal Party. Uh, Jill, you know, you've been watching The Week in Politics. What do you make of... um, These integrity issues and what does it tell us about what people think about politics and politicians?
1: So this is a great week for politics to be at its very, very worst, I think, because we are going to talk about children and children's attitudes towards politics later in this episode. We are. And when you think about, you know, even if you just like dip in and out of politics in Australia at the moment, it's just really, really grim. And I think Albanese came out in the last 24 hours and said, it's okay, I've never seen Corruption in in politics. So we're fine. We got, you know, nothing to see here. And the response on social media, and I know, you know, what a kind of daft thing to say, social media hates it. But social media did really hate it, right? People know they've got this gut feel at the moment that there's something black, you know, in the underbelly of Australian politics. And it's not necessarily partisan, but there is declining trust. There's, I think, increasing opacity, you know, the de- oh, declining transparency, if we want to say it the other way. Um, there's just this sense that uh, politicians don't care what we think and they're going to keep doing this. Oh, short-term visas for high rollers? Sure, why not? What can you do? What, what can any of us do about any of this? Well, yes.
2: I mean, I guess that is one of the issues and I, I guess what is a bit disturbing is that um there are, you know, there was uh, leaks this week about uh, internal discussions within the Labor Party, um, who uh, of senior figures Penny Wong, Tony Burke, and, and Anthony Albanese himself, who um, raised um, concerns about ne- uh, necessarily supporting this uh, proposed integrity commission, which is a pretty weak model. It's pretty toothless at the current sort of um, formulation because they sort of felt that it um, might um, impede the public services' capacity to give frank and fearless advice and make it harder to govern, um, which I, I think is interesting. Does anyone else have any views on on these issues?
3: Look, I think... Um These are issues that just have to be addressed. And the fact that we're still having a debate around um, a National Integrity Commission or a National Anti-Corruption Commission, I think is really disturbing. This is something that should be in place. It's been discussed for a while, it's been debated for a while. And on the the other podcast that comes out of the the Crawford School um, Policy Forum pod, we we interviewed Mark Wolf, um, who's an American, heavily involved with, an American judge, heavily involved with Transparency International. Um, And he's he was in Australia about twelve months ago, talking about the importance of a national-level commission around either anti-corruption or around integrity, um, and he made the point that you know this has to occur at national level, not just at state level, because so many issues are taken up at the at the, the federal level. Um, the fact that we're still debating this is disturbing, but it's perhaps not surprising. You know, Sue just outlined the dire situation of politics in Australia at the moment. And what we appear to have lost is any conception of the common good. You know, what appears to be driving both political parties but many individual politicians is just pure self-interest.
1: Well, I think it's the kind of politicians that we're – sorry, not we because we are constrained in who we get to elect, but I think it's the kind of people who are getting pre-selected by the parties. But we're mm. going to have a kick at the parties in a little while, I think. Well, yeah. Maria, how do you find Australian politics? You've been here a few weeks now.
0: I have been here for a couple of weeks. Uh, it's, it's been very interesting to compare – Australian politics to uh, politics in the United States. I'm principally uh, somebody that studies U.S. politics. And, you know, the bad things in Australian politics are also bad things in American politics. No way. Yes. Uh, and I think also the reactions to it are, are very similar. So in the United States, we have declining trust in government. There is increasingly a view that the that politics – Are constructed for the interests of a few people, and those people just elect who they want to elect, and then policy is the product of that small group of people and their interests. Uh, In the United States, we have uh, sort of a bigger problem of money in politics. Um, As many of you probably know, we had. Two mass shootings uh, yesterday in the United States, and this will again sort of bring up the discussion of the National Rifle Association and donations to political leaders who then become reluctant to engage in any kind of gun policy. This is just an example of sort of the pretty dominant views of – Every time there's some kind of controversy, well, this is just evidence that politics is just for a small mm-hmm. group of
1: people and not for the common good. We tend to have a saying in Australia that it takes us like 15 or 20 years to catch any international disease. and we're probably about <laughs> that level in terms of like declining trust. We don't really have a money in politics well this agree I don't think we do.
3: Um, <laughs> Clive Palmer. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, he it now? didn't work exactly. But it sets a dangerous trend. Um. Well, I think the scandal
2: around um, Crown uh, Casino, and uh, you know, if you look at the way the sort of um, background briefing two weeks ago about the role of big alcohol. Um, in politics and the way they are constraining regulation around, um, you know, a national alcohol strategy, given it's killing us. Um, what about, you know, the role of big gambling and the hoteliers, um, you know, this stuff around Crown? I mean, I, I, I agree with you. We don't have the same kind of money and politics problem that the US does. Like, it doesn't take millions of dollars to run, even just to run. Um, but, you know, I mean, if we look at the way we um, understand how finance works in this country, it's incre- incredibly opaque. You know, it's Ridiculous that we have to wait up to eighteen months to find out disclosures, um, and suddenly some government policies make a little bit more sense, or some reluctance on parties' parts to take on what are sort of objectively pretty um, unsavoury kinds of like policy directions are make much more sense. So I I, I don't know I, I I think we we do have some issue around this, but I think we We need to always be on our guard about uh, the way money and power and politics uh, works, and I don't think our institutions, our institutional settings are actually at the right level to to be to be managing some of the issues that have cropped up. like money in politics is never going away simply for the fact that parties need money to run campaigns, and I'm not necessarily yeah. advocating for public funding, because I think it creates its own distortions and we already have public funding to a degree yeah, in any in funding. any case but i don't really see how more transparency and i know you're not saying we shouldn't have transparency <laughs> i know that's not what you're saying um, is is going to, to hurt us or the idea that we have some form of um, corruption commission is somehow going to make, you know, the public service less likely to give frank and fearless advice. Like, of course it matters what kind of a model you set up and there's concerns that essentially it'll be a star chamber, right, um, in in a sort of similar model to what's gone on in uh, New South Wales and Victoria and other states. Um, but I, I think it's, a, it's disappointing that senior figures within the Labor Party are essentially saying, you know, that we shouldn't sort of support this um, because it will make our lives more difficult. Well,
1: we have – I mean, there's three political scientists in the room, so sorry, Sharon, you're just going to have to, like, listen to this for a second. <laughs> but this is a long-running um, trend in, in political science that major part, when you have a two-major party system, they work together. Yeah, yeah and to protect as, their own interests. To protect exactly, their own yes. interests, right? They, they want to exclude competitors. They know that they basically share power the power rotates between the two of them and they act like cartels yep and the that's what they're doing body thesis. but it's what well, they're doing
0: and there are additional consequences for that right so one example is oh the lack of transparency so all of a sudden it comes out that some policy is the product of interest groups and internal interests. But that policy was created 18 months ago. So uh, what are we going to do now? Uh, just sort it's of move already on. To it's years. already – It's not like, five years. There's nothing yeah. to do about it. It's but not then, like
1: we could repeal it.
0: Right? Yeah. <laughs> but then I think the second concern and, – and this directly relates to the to the Liberal Party scandal – is that these – sort of cartel-like structures reinforce particular groups of people that have power, right? So that means that uh, parties continue to be dominated by men, for example, uh, and that parties don't represent uh, minority interests. So indigenous populations don't get their voices heard because the cartel nature of it means it's very insular. It's very hard to break into it. And the same people just have power over and
1: over. And it's why the parties don't want Member, new members mm-hmm. because members are hard to control, control yeah. right? They have their own views and no one wants that. No one wants members with an ideology or any kind of <laughs> yes. enthusiasm. Or,
0: or, an, or an interest in shifting the party in some way. We yeah. know that this works, so we just want to repeat what works.
1: Yeah, everyone is trying to avoid the Labor momentum kind of Corbyn, you know, route, I guess. I was going to say disaster, but I don't think it's a disaster at all. <laughs> I think the Labor Party in the UK thinks it's a disaster and they're wrong.
2: <laughs> okay, I'm not sure I agree with that. I th- I think it's I think it's it's had all kinds of profound like public policy implications for th- for that country, the fact that they don't have a proper opposition because it's divided on the Only on roast salient issue that is defining all, all politics. But let's get to this issue around this uh, the, the issue that Miriam alluded to, which is this uh, allegations of um, sexual assault and sexual harassment by two Liberal Party staffers, um, by other members of the Liberal Party. In, I think in both cases, they were also staffers. So so for those of you that uh, aren't across the Mops Act, which is the uh, Members of Parliament, members Staff, of Parliament Act. Staff Act, there's a New South Wales one and there's a federal one. Uh, essentially, it's it sort of what it sort of says is is that political staff are not public servants right they're appointed by the the parliamentarian that they work for and um, and there are sort of not terribly many kind of uh, recourse uh, options for these staff members to sort of access what you would normally expect in a sort of HR. Environment where you could go and make a formal complaint about having been sexually assaulted or sexually harassed mm-hmm. in the workplace, um, and so in the case of these two women, you know, they had at least like the the bare minimum of protections because they were at least employees. But in cases where in the Greens, where it's actually just been party members, right, um, who have been the victims of sexual assault and sexual harassment, it sort of like raised this problem of whether or not. Political parties um, should be policing this kind of behaviour within their own institutions and the
1: implications um, of that. I have views, as you know. Go on. I think, so even the fact then that you pointed out, so these, um, so staffers are, and, and like full confession needs to be a staffer, staffers are employed under a separate act to most public servants. They do have recourse through that act to uh, employee representation, to HR and all those kinds of things. Through the Department of Finance. Through the Department of Finance. But one, so one important part of this cartelisation argument that we've just been talking about is that the party and the state start to become so entwined that you can't tell the difference. And this, I think there's, there's real evidence of this here that an obvious sort of um, mode of recourse is to go to the party, but you're not employed by the party. You know, you are employed by the state, you're employed by the government to do this job. And yes, you are directed by the parliamentarian for whom you work, but the party doesn't have any formal role here.
2: Well, I think, in, I think in the New South Wales case, and I, I grant you weren't a staffer uh, in the New South Wales, it, it does seem like if your supervisor, because it's, it's very vague, right, if your supervisor isn't um, able to uh, sort of uh, fix this for you, then another supervisor should be able to fix this for you. And ultimately, it actually will come down to your boss, who is an elected MP,
1: effectively. And doesn't want the scandal.
2: And doesn't want the scandal. So, But I'm not convinced that um, political parties who are responsible for selecting and putting into office the people that make our laws shouldn't have a role in uh, policing and managing conduct within their own organisations. Miriam, um, you study women in politics, well, you study gender in politics. What do you think?
0: All evidence would suggest that Unless the parties view this as something where they are going to have electoral consequences if they don't act, there's not going to be fundamental action on this. Uh, So the sort of route forward is, in my view, to hold the political parties responsible for what is ultimately something that they are responsible for (laughs) and and the – sort of only way to do that is for them to be concerned that there will be electoral consequences if they're not held responsible.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't have any faith that the parties have any incentive here to do anything. Yes.
0: And and this is this major issue, right? Is that unless voters decide that this is going to be something that they're going to use in their calculus of choosing who to vote for, then this is not going to be something that the parties have any incentive to engage in fundamental action on, unfortunately. And my view of sort of structured, semi-elected, semi-quasi-legislative staff members is that there's not going to be fundamental change unless the parties act, that it's not going to – there's not going to just be bureaucratic change that happens to protect these individuals or to create new processes because there's not any kind of incentive for the MP in that circumstance to – say, oh, yes, absolutely. Let's make this this big public thing about how one of my staffers sexually
1: assaulted yeah. another one of my
0: staffers. Yeah. Right? And like, I'm a great boss. I'm please a great reelect boss, me. Right? Yeah. Please. I'm I'm obviously running a real tight ship.
1: here, yeah. But I've reported it. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. you know, after the horse had bolted, it was fine.
0: The, and this is not just an Australian problem. This is an issue in the United States as well. This is an issue in the UK. This is an issue in Germany where there are Are these concerns about how do you deal with staff members who are bureaucratic employees employees, of the state, but are also directly accountable to an elected official who has very different incentives than to take any kind of action on this? And we've seen this in in Congress, Mm -hmm. in the U.S. Congress for a long time, elected officials who harass their own staff members could pay out damages to those staff members out of their campaign funds.
1: Oh my oh, god! Okay, That's, that I mean, changed
0: last year. Oh my god!
1: Okay, Sharon, <laughs> is there a bit of duty of care <laughs> argument here?
3: Yeah, there's definitely a duty of care argument here. And I think there are many dimensions to this. There's the political dimension of the reality of the lack of incentives. Um, I think the other part of this is how do we start to change those incentives so it's actually no longer in the interests of parliamentarians to try to cover this up where the conversation would actually be a more positive one if action is taken rather than it becoming a scandal for which the parliamentarian is blamed. Mm-hmm. Now, there are probably many cases where it is the parliamentarian's fault ultimately and it's about the culture that's been created. But I think as long as the incentive is for cover-up, we're not going to get any traction here. So we've got to start to change that public discourse. So all the incentives are around acting against bad behaviour, acting against sexual harassment, and certainly acting against crime, which is what sexual assault is. So we've got to change that kind of debate and the kind of conversation that we have around it. But there's also a duty of care for any organisation that is employing people whether that's paid employees or whether they're bringing in volunteers to work for them. There's Mm. a duty of care to ensure that that's a safe environment. And one of the really worrying things here is that we know from the Me Too campaign, we know from um, certainly the Royal Commission in Australia into institutional um, abuse of children, that many organisations act very, very badly (laughs) towards the people that they have a duty of care towards. Mm. And if we have this kind of modelling from our political leaders, then what does that say for the rest of the society? So we've just got to turn this around and make all the incentives for disclosure and action rather than cover up. Mm.
2: Absolutely. And on that uh, grim note, let's have a, a quick break. Uh, if you would like to get in contact with us, there are several avenues for which you can do that and we love your questions and comments, so please do send them. So if you would like to contact us on Twitter, it's at Apps Policy Forum. that's A-P-P-S, Policy Forum. We have our Facebook group, the Policy Forum Pod, or you can email us at podcast at policyforum.net. Have you ever wanted to make a
1: podcast? Got a story you want to tell? Or an audience you want to reach through the magic of audio? Then we've got the short course you've been waiting for.
2: I'm Martin Pearce.
1: And I'm Sarah Bice,
2: And we're running a very special Podcasting for Professionals short course here at the a Crawford School.
1: We'll teach you everything you need to get your idea into audio and out to an audience.
2: We'll answer all the questions you might have, like...
1: What should I call my podcast? What
2: formats work?
1: What equipment do I need? How do
2: I do interviews?
1: How do I write a script? How the
2: hell do I use this audio editing software?
1: How do I reach my adoring Spotify audience?
2: And how do I know if I've been successful?
1: So many questions, Martin. And
2: so many answers, Sarah.
1: Plus, you'll get hands-on experience right here in the Crawford Podcast booth. And
2: you'll get to meet some of the Crawford Podcast gang.
1: That's podcasting for professionals short course. Find
2: out more at bitly forward slash policy podcasting. That's bitly forward slash policy podcasting. All right, well, welcome back, everyone, and we're now going to um, we're, go- we're going to sort of leverage uh, the fantastic expertise of our. Of our guests, um, and to t- particularly uh, Mira Holman and Sharon Bessel uh, on their work on children and politics, um, and how they sort of think about their political leaders. So, so Mira, as I understand it, you ran some experiments uh, around sort of testing uh, children's uh, ideas about what they think about uh, politics. Can you tell us about that?
0: Sure. Uh, surveys, my experiments. Too hard to experiment on children. It's uh, a <laughs> time. Is tough. Give yeah. Us yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> yes, i So, yes, I uh, have a, a big project uh, with a great team of co-authors, uh, Angela Boss, uh, Zoe Oxley, Jill Greenlee, and Celeste Lay. And uh, we set out to try to understand what children think about politics, uh, which was uh, a really fun project. It had a variety of uh Challenges associated with it. I don't know how many of our listeners out there routinely talk to children. But. Too often. <laughs> right. uh, but uh, it takes a very particular approach to understand what kids think. You can't just plop a regular old survey down in front of them and ask <laughs> them to fill it out. And,
1: it's a simple uh, five-point scale. What, yes, what is your problem? That's yeah. right.
0: Uh, so uh, we developed a variety of instruments. Some of them were borrowed from uh, literature, studies conducted in the 1950s and 1960s that Actually, really haven't been updated since then about what kids think about politics. And then we also borrowed uh, heavily from uh, science, technology, engineering, and math education, which has been really interested in sort of what kids think about science. And they've developed a whole series of tools to understand the degree to which kids like science are exposed to science education, or interested in science and sort of how they view science. So we developed this big survey and then we surveyed or interviewed uh, about 1,600 students ages 6 through 12, which is primary school in uh, the United States, and asked them questions like, what do you think of the president? Right. So just just open-ended questions. Uh, So some survey questions, some open-ended questions. Uh, So – Uh, Some of the questions that we borrowed from the 1950s and 60s ask things like, do you think the president is smarter than the average person, as smart as the average person or less smart than the average person? Or do you think the president is the best person in the world, a good person or a bad person? Uh, So uh, some of those questions, we are able to evaluate sort of how much change has occurred since the 1950s and 60s. Uh, And then we also ask a variety of of Open-ended questions, things like "What is a famous person that you want to be like when you grow up?" Uh, and so we were able to code some political answers in there. There's also a lot of Beyonces. Well, to
1: FYI, yeah, well, of know. course.
0: I mean, we all want to be Beyonce <laughs>
1: when we grow up. <laughs> One really cool thing you did, because what is, what struck me about this about this study is how obvious it seems. Why don't we Why don't we ask kids all the time? Um, but it's easy to say that after the fact, right? Sure. One really cool thing that you guys did was got them to draw politicians. Mm -hmm.
0: Yes. Yeah. So the very first task that we asked them to do was we asked them to close their eyes and imagine a political leader and then to draw a picture of that political leader and then provide us with three answers about it. So we asked them to describe to us what the person is doing in the picture, to give us three words that they think describes a political leader, and then what do they think a political leader does on an average day.
1: And it was kind of grim. Yeah. What were the results? Uh
0: yeah. It's, uh, it's grim
3: <laughs> in a lot of
0: ways. From the perspective of somebody that studies gender and politics, it's particularly grim. Uh, so, about twelve percent of the political leaders that were
1: drawn are women. Yeah. So it's pretty representative. I mean, they're, they're like they're spot on, right?
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, we're at like twenty percent at the national level in the United States. Uh,
2: but that's a historic bump, right?
0: Uh, no, we've been at we've been at twenty percent since ninety two almost. Oh, okay, okay. okay.
1: So you sort of stagnated. Yes, I guess. yes. So what we've found here, and this is, th- this is I don't know how Australian a phenomenon this is because this isn't my field, but um, we're, particularly women who were socialised with Julia Gillard as Prime Minister. So if you're coming into age, sort of twelve to eighteen, mm-hmm. and that was your first memory of politics, that that. Uh, Well, we know from a a great study by McAllister and uh, and, um, Dassenville that uh, that means that women, if you had a female prime minister or president when you were a teen, that means you now know more about politics. You're more interested in politics. You're engaged. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there sort of evidence of that? I mean, I guess in the US, you haven't had that nice sort of experimental treatment of having no. a female president. But no,
0: no, we have not
1: had a female president. That is true. <laughs> it will be so interesting to see what happens. Yes.
0: Yeah, so uh, we do know. So overall, uh, what we asked the kids about things like their interest in politics. Would you like to have a political job when you grow up? Do you find reading books about politics and government interesting? Uh, boys report higher levels of all of those things than girls do. Uh, If you – we asked them for – we gave them a list of potential jobs and asked them to check as many jobs as they would like and they included things like president, governor, mayor, but also things like school teacher and doctor. Boys select more political jobs than girls do. Uh, each of those political jobs, boys are more likely to select them. But if a girl draws an image of a woman leader, those gaps disappear.
1: Is there right. any effect of having a female governor, having a female mayor? Yes. Yeah, there okay. are. So
0: uh, we conducted this at uh, five different sites yep. in the United States. And the sites vary a lot in terms of what is the racial and ethnic makeup of the site itself, but also the gender of the mayor, the representatives at the state level, uh, and then the congressional representatives. So we have places where there were women at every level, and then we have places where there were no women at any level. Uh, And we see that girls are more likely to draw, say, a female mayor when there's a female mayor in their local area, and then those girls are more likely to express interest in politics.
2: So Sharon, I know your work is on um, children, children's rights, children's poverty. How do you think as a political system we really kind of uh, think of children and do you think we are doing that in a way that is serving their interests best or do we have real blind spots?
3: No, we have enormous blind spots. Um, I think just picking up on um, what Maria was saying about, you know, if you have a female um, parliamentarian or a female mayor or a female politician, that mm. girls are more likely to, to see that and to model it. But the other part of that, and I'm going back to your comments about Julia Gillard, is it's not just the existence of that woman in a leadership position that influences both boys and girls, it's also the treatment of that woman in that political leadership role. And talking to young women here about um, what they observed when Julia Gillard was in parliament was on the one hand, the fact that we can have a prime minister who is a woman. It's a great thing. The other part of that is who would want to do it? Because look at how she was treated.
1: And I think and that, that was
3: so gendered so and often so sexualised. Um, and that sent a very powerful message to young women as well. So I want to come back to the comment of how mm. we treat children. But I think that's really important. It's more than just a woman being there, it's how she's dealt with. I
2: think it was just so depressing how much it was sort of resisted that that was uh, a thing that was happening. You know, like people are playing the gender card. She, you know, we shouldn't be talking about this gender card thing. This is outrageous. But yeah, absolutely, as you were saying.
3: I think i just add to that too, I was um, involved in, in some research at the time that Donald Trump was elected um, that was not about um, children's use of politics, but was talking to some young girls um, who were about 12 years old, so this is in Australia, um, and one of the things that they raised was that they were really upset. And one of these girls was crying when she was talking about this because of Donald Trump's comments that had been recorded about men with money being able to do anything they wanted to with to women and to touch them however they wanted. Um, and this group of girls were saying, if the President of the United States can say that he can grab a woman's vagina and it's okay, what does that mean for our lives? I think
1: there's a really interesting class dimension here. I, I make everything about class. There's a really interesting class dimension here as well um, and I probably fall into this trap cause I have a 12 year old daughter and we often laugh about, about things in politics because it doesn't affect us, you know, because we are very lucky and very privileged and we can almost ride above a lot of things. And so I wonder, you know, you, you look a lot at inequality, Sharon, and, and, um, you know, children living in poverty, how much does that matter too, where you have that intersection between gender and also um, real um, economic marginalisation?
3: Oh, Look, I think poverty absolutely structures children's lives in in every way. Yeah. Um, And certainly if children are feeling more vulnerable – Um, on a whole range of issues, then that just exacerbates their their feelings of vulnerability in other Mm. areas. Um, So I think there probably is a class dimension, but I don't know of any research that's been done specifically on this issue. It would be a really interesting project, Um, and it probably depends on a lot of factors. But poverty, or the sense of power and yeah. the sense of where you're positioned in your society, society is one of those factors. Um, and Marie, you asked, you know, are we acting in the interests of children um, in Australia? Well, our research has shown that no, often we're not. <laughs> um, we tend not to think about children. When we talk about policies for children, it's often in an incredibly adult-focused way. We almost never have conversations around education from a child-centred perspective. Perhaps except for bullying. You know, there has been a lot of occupation, okay. a lot of um, discussion around bullying, not always from a child-centered perspective, but that's perhaps one area where it's happened. But we generally don't think about policies from children's perspective when we think about childcare and early childhood development. Mm-hmm. It's really about productivity. Yeah. Not about it's children's rights to educational development.
1: Yeah. I hate that this is how that um, childcare arguments are framed.
0: Yeah. That, it, that yeah. it is
1: about, well, mums mom, need to work. Yes. Well,
0: I think a, a sort of really interesting dimension to this also is is thinking about class and how class intersects with gender yeah. within the context of caring for children, right? So we not only sort of have this view of productivity. Yes, we need child care so that moms can go off to work. But the jobs that they go off and do are often caring for children. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So we have school teachers that are – Overwhelmingly women. We have child care workers that are overwhelmingly women. And those voices are largely absent from any of these policy discussions about what's good for what's a good policy here. Instead, it's elites making policies largely elite men making policies where they have never sort of experienced the life of what it means to be, say, a second grade teacher or a primary school teacher or a childcare worker.
1: I regularly get media inquiries, Jill, why don't you think that more nurses want to go into politics? And so we come back full circle, right? Who would go through that pre-selection process?
2: Who has the time to dedicate to, you know, hours and hours and hours of unpaid labor, which is essentially like maneuvering and branch stacking and you know, and doing, doing all the internal, party yeah, politics you know, things. which is you know, if we go back to our previous story, like dominated by a boys' club, which is you know dominated by certain codes of behavior that sort of favor one group over another. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah, absolutely yeah. There, there's yeah. no structural incentive for a nurse, for a teacher, for a childcare worker, for a cleaner, for you know, but then on the male side as well, for for tradespeople to want to go and do this. Are you going to get asked, well, why didn't you go to university? What went wrong at high school? You know, when you were going through that selection process mm-hmm. to become a candidate, mm-hmm. you were going to get all kinds of questions. Where are your kids right now? Well, and I don't know.
0: <laughs> there's the possibility that it's not just, oh, you have to think about these connections, but it may be financially unfeasible for you to take the time off work and exactly. order to do these activities, exactly. right? If you're a school teacher, you need to be in your classroom during the times where there's lunch meetings and schmooze sessions and you get to know people, right? You're
1: looking after your kids yes. at home. Yeah. You're not going to nighttime meetings. Yeah. Because kids, you know, want their mum before bed. It, exactly. There's huge structural inequalities that I don't know, embed all of this. It's very grim today.
2: It is very grim today. There are
3: also structural inequalities, just to continue the grim theme. Yeah. There are structural inequalities around the way in which children's views on what makes a good society mm. are also systematically excluded. I mean, firstly, th- they don't have the right to vote. And so they're not seen as being a constituent. It's not of, in any party's interest. And
2: we saw that with the, really the think climate about protests, right? They should that's be in exactly school. Right. Why, are they, uh, why are they having an opinion? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah.
3: that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, whereas the research that we've done with children about about their communities essentially have indicated that children have a really strong view mm. on what makes a good society, on what they'd like to see change. And we often got the the response from adults, well, why would you bother asking kids because they're going to want more ice cream or they're <laughs> going to want time off school, which is the most ignorant response I've ever heard to any research I've ever done. We've definitely because, gotten this like, well, who yeah. cares
0: what kids think about politics? They don't vote.
3: Whereas what children said to us was they worried about labor market policy mm-hmm. because they wanted their parents to be at home more. They wanted to have time with parents after school, before bed, on weekends. They worried about – and this really is a class issue – they worried about the children um, in disadvantaged areas, about the kinds of work their parents had to do and the trade-offs often between their health – and their work and the stress that was on their parents and how that impacted on the family. They worried about parents being injured at work and then not having any workers' compensation or access to insurance. They worried about the cost of rents and some of the children that we worked with knew what percentage of their parents' income went to paying rent and how much was left for food. So, you know, children, particularly in situations of disadvantage, know what life is and know how difficult it is.
0: We saw a lot of... Kids being very concerned about violence in their communities, right? Drawing we found pictures that too. Of, yeah. of police people, p- policemen shooting somebody in their community and blood, wow. because their cons- their view of politics is on the ground realities. What does it mean? Well, mm. politics are is policing in my community and and people around me dying. Yes, absolutely. That's politics. That's very political. And what so what we've so, so of... just to follow
3: up on this because so we had we had similar things about violence. Certainly not. Pol- police perpetrating violence. And I think that's where the, the national contexts are different, mm-hmm. depending on whether you're Indigenous or not, perhaps. But, yes. um, but children talked a lot about violence. And in the intro, we talked about the role of alcohol, big yeah. alcohol mm-hmm. interests. One of the things that came up again and again and again in our research was the way in which alcohol fueled violence and children's direct experiences of that, sometimes in their home, but very often in their communities and what they saw on their streets. And that was just overwhelming. And when we talked to children about what they'd changed, it was the accessibility of alcohol. And interestingly, children would often say, we know that adults like alcohol, and so we can accept <laughs> that, but they need to learn how to moderate. And so we need to put things in place that keep them safe and keep us safe from them. Because kids can see the warning signs. They can yeah. see it ramp up. Right? They can see it Better ramp up can. and they would talk about it in terms of the unpredictability of people who are drunk or people who are taking drugs mm-hmm. and their own vulnerability to that and their own inability to do anything about it. I was going to say one of – we have a research blind spot here,
1: which is there is a stronger tradition in the US of studying local politics. You guys who study pol- local politics think that's like under-recognized. <laughs> but no one yes. here is doing it. No yeah. one is doing what we call sort of um, – actually, that's not true. There are quite a few people. But looking at kids and, and you know, how they interact with public-facing government, whether it's police, whether it's um, – Parks
0: recreation, right. transportation, all of We heard of these a lot things. about
3: hospitals, you know, and waiting lists at hospitals mm-hmm. because children experience that or they see the people they mm-hmm. love experiencing um, yeah. long waiting times or not being able to get care when they need it. And that's a political issue as much as
1: it is a health issue. Mm-hmm.
2: So does this impact on the way children think about political leaders? Mm. What do they think about them? Do they think they are the best people in the world?
1: They do not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no. Which is good. I, in many ways, it is good, right? So we had what I would see as a sort of inflated view of the goodness of government in the 50s and 60s mm. among the kids that were that were surveyed, that a huge proportion of them see the president as the smartest person, the best person, makes the best decisions. And some of that relates to the fact that in the 50s and 60s, this research was being done on all-white Groups of children where they – the researchers didn't care about class and so they were interviewing uh, the children of
2: uh, Yale colleagues – Oh my God! Okay,
0: right. So they're doing it in New Haven, and they're doing it in schools where all the kids have parents that are have PhDs and are professors at Yale. So it's a very particular view of what they might feel very secure. But we we do see drops in all of these things, right? So the kids today are much less likely to say that the president is the best person in the world. Uh, So overall perhaps a far more realistic view of what politics actually is like uh, today. It also means, though, that kids are listening, right? This is part of the the importance of all of this is that we see sort of narratives from the kids that we hear in the media about, mm. uh, you know, the relationship between Donald Trump and uh, racist rhetoric, for example. So. One child drew a picture of Donald Trump giving a speech and you ask him what is what is happening in this image. And the young boy said, that's Donald Trump. He's talking about how he wants to make black people slaves again. Oh, my. Or another uh, young Hispanic boy drew a picture of Donald Trump giving a speech and said, this is Donald Trump. He's talking about building a wall to keep my family out. Right. So there are narratives of that. There are also narratives on the other side, though. This is this is Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And Hillary Clinton's talking about how uh, she's going to take all of our money and and give it to other people, right? So there's there are narratives on both sides. Those the types of discussions that are happening in the media, that are happening in people's homes, trickle down. Kids are hearing these things. They're little sponges. They're absorbing these types of uh, types of narratives, which certainly contributes to sort of a view that the president is not the best person in the world.
1: For yeah. example, it would be fascinating to have compared. Just go back about. Six years and yeah. under parent
0: I Obama. We're working on a time machine. Don't yeah. worry about it. <laughs> we get a lot of those
1: comments in academia, right? Could you have done this 10 years ago and the yes. same was different?
0: Yeah. Or my favorite is now like, oh, well, are you going to just – you're going to repeat it again further in the Trump ed- – Administration, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah I'll just without
2: buckets of money, just yeah.
0: get back, right back on it.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, well, on that note, on time machines and buckets of money, it's probably time for us to go back to our fun jobs. So All right,
0: excellent. <laughs> Thank you very much for for <laughs> being are here with us, us today. Neither time machines nor
2: buckets of money. <laughs> Don't tell them that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everyone.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Thanks, Maria. Thanks. Bye.